0: All right, welcome everybody to Learn With Lowell. Today we are rejoined with Peter Wen, who was on four or five years ago. Uh, we talked about engineering living materials at the time. He was at the V's. He still is at the V's, we're gonna talk about that. But uh, we, we are pro- most likely just for like a, a teaser for what we're gonna get into today. We're gonna talk about synthetic biology, climate change and everything in between. Peter, welcome back to the show.
1: Great having you, uh, invite me back Lowell. It's great seeing you after all
0: these years. Yes, the, uh, so I, I mentioned I was gonna start here because i'm selfish but so in the midwest i thought i was gonna avoid climate change related problems i thought like hey you know the world's gonna suck but you know maybe in the midwest we can like build stuff and then bring the good to everywhere else but we've been getting forest fires from canada and they won't stop is there anything from a synthetic biology standpoint or in in your brain that we could either a like reduce the effects of forest fires i don't know how we do that you know you have a bigger brain than me scrub the air or insert solution there. Well, how do you think about combating forest fires as it relates to climate change?
1: Yeah, no, uh, I mean, I share your your concern and your frustration. We've been getting a lot of that haze in Boston too. You know, literally where I walk out the front door and I'm like, what is going on? Did a fire, you know, did a house burn down in my neighborhood because the haze was so thick.
0: A quick note, Uncle Sam wants you to help make this show successful. Subscribe and become a member today.
1: And so we're getting a lot of it up in Boston here. and it's gotten to the point where we regularly check the air when we go out. You know, you go to airnow.gov um, yeah. and it gives you like weather forecasts. Uh, yeah. So you thought you're going to be a climate refugee over in the Midwest, huh? That that didn't happen.
0: <laughs> it's following uh, me. I'm very upset about this.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a hard question. So for synthetic biology, uh, there's not much you can do, right? Because forest fires are, you have climate change causing huge swaths of Canadian forest to kind of dry out. And then they, you know, they spark up in the summers and they burn like crazy. Um, and, and I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is the sheer scale of how big it is and why we can't get it under control. Um, and, uh, you know, just just kind of realizing how big it is, you know, just getting a little smoke down here for us is like, uh, that's not that bad. If you look at it from a global scale, you know, scrubbing the the atmosphere is interesting. So, so that goes beyond, um, synthetic biology, that's more entering into, uh, geo engineering at that point. Right. Um, essentially we are kind of if, if you do want to scrub the atmosphere and, and I've seen designs where people have designed things like that and they' they have uh you know they're, they're fully set on implementing this where it's er, there are these huge towers that will take in the air and scrub the air and maybe even pull out CO2 from the air while it's doing that. Um, I don't remember who exactly designed it, uh, but I know a lot of different companies, Uh, and a lot of different governments are looking into that and you know it's gotten to that point in climate change where you know these are technologies that you know in the past science fiction has kind of uh introduced and developed you know in in sci-fi stories for geoengineering of other planets for Mm -hmm. uh you know for development for human beings and now we have to Kind of take those kind of same ideas and apply them for our own planet because we, you know, we've screwed things up that bad. Uh, that's a uh, that's kind of sobering to think about. Yeah, um, there,
0: there's a commenting on just the the scrubbing of the atmosphere, like capturing CO two. There's a person who's yeah. recently on the show, which I don't think the episode's been up yet, but it will be up soon. That they've built like a pilot device in um, South in Saudi Arabia, which basically pulls in air and co2 and then uses like a water mechanism to like spray water on like this thing and it like apparently it, like grabs the co2 because it's heavier or lighter or something like a differentiator and then they can store it in a solid or a liquid and i was like i was so there's like that's neat but it's also like it's kind of like nuclear power plants where it's like oh it's really simple yeah. it's, it kind of disappoints me like i want like this like cavorkian, uh you know like crazy way of doing things it's just like oh you just you know put some water on and then you like keep it in a little capsule and then you take it out of that, the atmosphere
1: yeah. I mean, th- that's probably due to costs, right. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to keep it as simple as possible. Um, but yeah, you know, scrubbing things out of the the atmosphere, I don't think that's a, a starter for wildfires just because if you look at why, you know, if you look at the response of these wildfires, you know, uh, a lot of the people that are fighting these wildfires are, they're, they're not paid hardly anything at all, you know, um, and so there's not that much funding just to combat these wildfires. Um, and so if you say, all right, we're going to, you know, we're going to try to develop something and put money into uh, dealing with the after effects of the, of the wildfire, uh, I, I just think economically that's non-starter. And, mm-hmm. you know, th- the more I am in the whole climate area kind of looking into the technologies and all that stuff you know the more i kind of zero in on the economics of it because i really feel like for a lot of what's out there there are technologies available but they're just not economically viable they're too expensive they can't be scalable and they're they're just non-starters they make great fluff stories where you can kind of get some buzz but in terms of a practical implementation you kind of have to look at the economics, right? Uh, somebody has to fund it. Somebody has to keep it going. It has to be sustainable. Um, and where is that money going to come from? You know. Um, yeah. So, if I said, you know, Halo, hey, we're going to build a couple of towers in your backyard. It'll scrub the air. It'll be clean. Um, your your whole area doesn't have to worry. Uh, but by the way, your taxes will increase about forty percent. You know, or let's say. Probably not even forty percent. It'd be like four hundred percent, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna want that. Um, And so it's, it's a matter of uh, what you're willing to live with. And right now, we're we're reaching that period uh, on the planet, I think, where it's like, okay, how much are you willing to put up with, and how much will it cost for you to live in a place where you're insulated? From all of the stuff that's happening, um, yeah, it, it's it's a lot of difficult decisions that that have
0: to be made. Yeah, I think the gentleman who was on the show said that the the plant after the pile plant, which I think is going to be ten thousand tons of CO two that can be stored, which is and it's yeah. it's a small dent, but it's like getting up to those like million tons that I think people want. Um, I think he said it was like fifteen to twenty million. And I really hope that I was allowed to answer that. But the like so for like one, like 10, 10 tons a year, that's like fifteen million million of a of a of a plant to build. Um is I don't know better? how yeah. I, but at the same time, I don't know how how much you, you would need to take out to reduce the the smoggy effect of forest fires. Like I don't know like how much of it is weighted compared to like CO two and how um if you use a similar process to to rip it out. That'd be kind of nice. I mean, if it was like a similar thing, I think you could get like like Chicago, whatever. I think you could get like all the people with like really high net worth, you know, property taxes. Like they build like a couple of them, like just north, and then like they filter before it gets to in. But I, I would, um, I guess that's a mathematical equation. Like, how much would you have to scrub out at a given period of time to make it so you generally wouldn't notice it? Someone yeah. could do the math. I, I don't think we have the numbers to do the math right now, though.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like Canada would bristle at the U.S or anybody trying to spend that much money while they're just fighting wildfires still. Right. Um, and so a lot of it is, can, can you put money on the problem? Mm Uh, and obviously the, the problem of climate change and, uh, increasing temperatures is, is a huge problem to tackle. But, you know, one thing that you can tackle, for example, is, uh, minimizing the likelihood of forest fires for, you know, expanding to this extent that they do? Can you create forest breaks uh, beforehand, before fires break out so that if a fire does break out, it's it can only go so far and it's limited because you, you've already engineered these fire breaks in. Um, and that is another, you know, we're, we're talking about global scale, you know, this is a, at this point, subcontinental scale uh, engineering, right? Uh, it's not exactly terraforming, but, you're talking about the huge Canadian forest and trying to like engineer it so that forest fires are limited. Uh, yeah. Nobody's going to want to pay for that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> would do you like the idea of? I think it was Elon Musk who said like a carbon tax of some kind. Like if you add that, added a tax to it, and then you use that money to like fund research. You think that would be? Because I, I I hear your point. A lot of times it does just come down to like what's the economic incentives to do A over B. If it's cheaper to do A, like I've I've had people on the show that are trying to upset supply chains that basically have like slave labor attached to them and build locally in america so that you don't have slave labor in america but if you were to say like hey you have to pay more for this non-slave labor supply chain versus mine most people are like oh i'm gonna go for the you know like the evil utilitarian thing because i you know most people don't care unless they know about it then it's like a product marketing thing but um so but if you add the incentive of like maybe there's a tax difference so like you know the u.s doesn't do business with them or what have you or there's like a like a slave tax i'm like really drawing the metaphor too far here. But if there's like yep. a carbon tax, that might be like the incentive that switches people over to using technologies and practices that um, that slowly start making a change even faster. But what, how do you think about it?
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, I think at this point there needs to be some kind of top down um, implementation of, of things like that, such as like you mentioned a, a very strict carbon tax. But I, I think we have to be mindful the political will for something like that is almost non-existent, right? Um, because we're talking, you know, uh, uh, I think to most people that are going to be listening to your to your podcasts, you know, um, it's a good idea until you're the one that has to pay the tax. And eventually, everybody does because it's, it trickles down. You know, the, the companies that get charged with this tax, they're going to end up charging more for their products and services and things of that sort, right? So things will increase the price. Um, but maybe it is needed right now because, you know, things are problematic. And so I I think having top-down, uh, regulations for a lot of these is a, a viable alternative. I just don't think it's likely to happen, uh, because more and more you will get people put into office that are put there to say, oh, this isn't that bad right now. We have other issues. We, you know, our, my constituents are struggling. How can you ask them to, to pay these taxes? Of course, and of course, they're probably pocketing like petroleum money. But, you know, uh, and so so I think, you know, once you have, um, I, I, I guess this is kind of veering off into politics, which is. I feel like once you have an affluent country where people are used to a certain standard of living and they start to lose that standard of living due to maybe like just economics, maybe it's the evolution of the country itself. Maybe it's uh, a particular evolution of the, the economy itself, the global economy, the local economy. And then you have these disruptions where you do need to kind of tighten your belt, uh, where you need to, to kind of put these top-down, Rules and regulations in place to kind of, kind of figure out and and iron out these kinks, and you know this is th- these are potentially existential problems that we're trying to deal with, right? But once people start to to realize that my standard of living is going to decrease, then you start to see huge pushback against that, um, and and I think that might backfire in that it's not only just a ba- a a. a a pushback on carbon tax for example which is very specific right mm-hmm. it's a very specific thing it's going to bleed out into oh these people you know these people being environmentalists or people that that want these uh these changes they they want to take away your 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 gas they want to take away uh your gas ovens they want to take away you know this and that and then it becomes a it, it develops into a culture war which you know it doesn't need to be uh, mm-hmm. and so i see you know i see these things as needed i just don't see them as likely to happen and, and my this is my personal estimation kind of thinking about human nature and, and my own personal view of like how humans uh the dynamics of of how we we operate on the planet
0: yeah yeah uh, so if it then i imagine the onus or like where the real change to climate change is more in your department of engineering or developing something from a science standpoint that is at a cost level where um you could either sell it to like b2b to like scrub different areas or what have you so i it sounds like that's more the route that you think that people should go down like out engineer the problem
1: yeah absolutely i i feel like if if you give people two options right and I'm going to use plastic waste because that's, that's kind of something I'm focused on right now uh, is plastic waste. So you know, there's a huge problem with plastic waste. 10% of it doesn't get recycled at all, ends up in the ocean, ends up in landfills and everything. Imagine if you put a, a tax on plastic waste saying, all right, we're going to go through your trash and for every pound of plastic you throw away, we're going to tax you for it. Uh, so either you find a way to to compost it, you find a way to, they're, they're compostable plastics, you find a way to recycle it, or you find a way to, to reduce your use. You know, people are going to, they're going to go bonkers because plastic is in everything, right? We, we go through plastic like so much, um, you know, if you put top-down regulations like that, people will get angry. But if you develop a new technology that is economically viable and you're like, look, We have this new technology we can actually take plastics break them down and make something else with them that you can sell for a profit and then there's a there's that magic word with a p profit i can make you money then all of a sudden people are interested you know um so I, i think if you develop a technology and it has an economic incentive in that people want this they want people want clean air they they want yeah. you know pristine rivers they 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 want these things it's just extremely costly to get there but if we can kind of short circuit that using technology and get to a point where the economics are just within reach and then if they're just within reach at that point you you kind of like develop it and uh once there it's adopted you kind of like scale things up and things will get cheaper hopefully right I think that's the more viable route where you don't have such a huge public pushback on things and you have everybody, uh, okay, I can make money on it. It's good for the environment. Great. You know, everybody's on board at that point point. Um, and we just need the science to get there. Uh, I, I, I really think having scientific breakthroughs is, is the key thing for just not not only improving uh, our lifestyle, but making sure we're doing things in a sustainable way, right mm-hmm. um, And I feel like uh, if you look at every major huge change in our lifestyle, you can imagine the, the advent of the steam engine, for example, right That was through the, you know the engineering of steam engines and scientists looking at you know enthalpy and heat and, and how how these things work um and, and i think it 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 can literally be the foundation for an economic boom mm-hmm. but everybody needs to kind of at least uh put some money and effort into developing these technologies right now and, and there is there is a huge amount of effort because i think a lot of scientists uh they do realize that there is a huge need for it and there's actually money for it now. Uh and so yeah, there's there's kind of like a, a little gold rush happening in terms of people developing new sustainable technologies. You just look at every every article that comes out about the new, the next EV battery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all these advances in battery technology that have happened just within the past five years. Uh, and you look at battery technology back in the eighties, nineties, it was pretty much stagnant. Right. And that's because there was no demand to really like generate that kind of technology until you had EVs and they had a very, very high specific technology requirement that, you know, we just weren't able to meet. And so now people are like, okay, let's, let's try to hit it. Um, so yeah, science and economics, they make very good bedfellows. I think that's, that's my final assessment.
0: Yeah are you uh is your focus on so there, Molly Morris was once on the show and Molly if you want to come back on you're welcome to but the uh, she uh she she's out in the bay area she runs yeah. uh mango materials are you familiar with her work no no okay well, i don't know. i won't, but i guess for people listening they wouldn't know anyway so it's good to cover ground basically they she uses methane to produce plastics uh, mm. that are single use and biodegradable yeah yeah is that the like the a, lane you would want to go down with your work
1: yeah I mean that that is exactly the lane that we're we're going into, so you know and and the whole idea is, for example, methane uh huge, huge greenhouse gas, right mm-hmm. uh you know it's 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 much more of an amplifier of global warming than carbon dioxide is, and so that's something you definitely want to to kind of uh prevent getting in the atmosphere and so it's it's essentially a waste. And can we use that waste to create other things, right? And, you know, the whole idea is it's it's this form of alchemy. Can you take something that's worthless, you know, magic it into something that is worth a lot, right? Science can get us there. And so that is kind of the exact lane that my, I'm taking, as well as a huge number of other synthetic biologists that are taking. Um, and taking these materials that are wastes and trying to convert them using biology into something that is highly valuable at that point. Um, and so uh, what I'm working on with the bees right now is uh, I- I'm very interested in developing systems. These are biological organisms that are specifically engineered to take waste such as oil waste and plastics. Take that and convert it into something that is highly valuable. So imagine if, if I had uh, all the waste in your, in your neighborhood, right? If I was able to take that, you know, think plastic bottles, uh, plastic bags, all the stuff that would end up uh, end up in the oceans, all the stuff that would end up breaking up into plastic microplastics that end up everywhere in your body, giving you toxic syndromes and stuff like that. All that plastic, I can take that. I can have engineer a bacterium or a microbe or a bug to eat that plastic, right? And to take that plastic and convert it into something like, for example, fuel. What if I can, could take all that plastic and convert it into gasoline that you could put in your car? I mean, that would be just that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or you can turn it into animal feed. You know, because when you think about it, and and, and I feel like a lot of people. A lot of people when they think about plastic, it's it's this cognitive disconnect. Because when you think about plastic, one of the very first things you think is it's synthetic, it's plastic, right? You mm-hmm. don't think about taking a plastic bottle, chopping it up into little pieces and eating it, because it's it's just it's not natural, right? Um, but if you think about it, it 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 was derived from a natural thing. It, you know, hundreds of million years ago, that was a leaf somewhere that was eaten by an animal and was buried and through all the the uh millennia of like heat and pressure you turn that into crude oil and eventually you get from that plastic. So it used to be a living thing at one point. The atoms in there used to be a living thing. Right. And so all we're doing using these engineered microbes is we're breaking down those atoms back into you know what they were, which is just usually carbon atoms. And uh, you know, living organisms are great at taking carbon atoms, breaking them down, and then reassembling them into what it needs to survive, right? Mm. This is exactly, for example, that's exactly why you eat, right? You you, you eat a steak, your, your whole body breaks it down into atoms, and then it stitches it back up into your own muscles, your own brain cells, you know, your own self, essentially. Um, and can we take that? whole idea and make something that digests plastic, breaks it down, and then you can just say, all right, I feel like we need more fuel today. Crank it to fuel, and now it spits out fuel. Or let's say, um, and this is a a very exciting concept, we can actually have these bacteria now break down these plastics and then make bioplastics with them. And so now you're, you're making a plastic that is actually biodegradable from plastic that is not biodegradable. Um, And that way you're actually solving two problems at once. One is replacing plastic and another is getting rid of the plastic that we already have. That is waste that is, you know, just everywhere right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I think that is, uh, it might sound sci-fi, but it's it's totally possible in the lab right now. It's just highly inefficient. Uh, and once you see something as possible, it's just inefficient. You know you have a route to just crank things. What knobs can I turn? What nuts can I crank? Um, how, to, how to get there to the point where this is economically viable? And my, my whole dream, my whole vision is like, you know, hundreds of years in the future, when I'm long gone and with this podcast is, you know, in the Library of Congress somewhere, right? Um, the people hundreds of years from now are going to be like, oh, yeah, of course we break down our own plastic and make more plastic with it. You know, what else would you do with it? You know, and they would be shocked that in the past we just threw it away into the ocean or threw it away into landfills. Um, it just seems like a no brainer to do that. Uh, and, and I feel like, you know, once the technology is there, and then people adopt it, it becomes part of kind of our our the way we do things as a civilization.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Is it? Would it be? It's it. So I see the power of what you're saying. I see the the impact of what you're saying. It sounds like it would be like it would be tailored for each of the use cases you were talking about. It wouldn't be, right. for instance, like one organism that's been engineered. I don't think, uh, from my limited knowledge, it sounds like you would have to re-engineer the organism for each of the use cases, because uh, um, I imagine it would be even harder to try and get like all that functionality into one yeast, or whatever the heck you'd be using. I, I imagine it's easier, from uh, an engineering standpoint, to just to like, hyper-fixate on what the end functionality you want from the organism. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, that, it sounds really powerful to take this engineered organism uh and then you know basically feed it plastic and have it like out convert it sounds almost like that star trekian you know uh you know matter converter or whatever it's called where like you can like make tea hot or whatever and like you're saying yeah. like we're all doing it you know every day but i could totally see you know that tapping into like garbage plants or um or any of these other different things that are already like a part of our way of life they just like slip in that technology in there and you know yeah. feed the beast and then you know have like this whole different supply chain from it that I imagine would be also decentralized, like the supply chain defeat, it wouldn't be that complicated versus like other, other ways of doing things.
1: Um, yeah, so a lot, the whole supply chain thing, we're not even close to being there yet, right? Mm-hmm. We just need the technology to, to be efficient at this point. And, and that Star Trek technology you're thinking about, is you know, the replicator,
0: right? There you go. Uh,
1: yeah, uh, Earl Grey Hot, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it won't, obviously won't be as fast as the replicator. Um, and, you know, we, we already have replicators. You and I are replicators. We, uh, every living organism is a replicator. It just happens on, on a kind on of a different scale. And, and you're absolutely right. Having one organism that can do all these things that is like the, you know, that would, that is certainly possible. It, it's just highly, highly difficult to achieve. And like I, I mentioned right now, uh, breaking down plastics using bacteria is possible. It's just inefficient. And, and we're at this point right now where people can see that this is achievable, but because it's it's so inefficient, the way we go about as engineers kind of tackling it is to simplify it absolutely as much as possible. Because you know, imagine you have a machine and, and you need to fix it. If it's too complicated, you have to think about all these different systems in the machine and, and it gets really difficult to kind of hone in on how do I, how do I streamline it, how to optimize it. But if you can simplify parts of the machine, like I can say, all right, I want this particular sub-assembly that's all I'm going to focus on to optimize right now, it becomes uh, tractable. And so right now, what what we're working on, what I'm working on, a lot of other people in the world are working on, uh, the way we're doing it is we're saying, all right, we're going to focus on one particular plastic what we want to get rid of and and for example uh pt polyethylene terephthalate right so pt is one of the most used plastics in the world it's if you drink like uh one of the plastic soda bottles that is pt you know that's that's what you think of when you think of pt or the the, the plastic containers on your eggs for example that's pt we're going to say all right this is pt we know it, chemically exactly what it is. It's highly defined. We don't, we're don't. we not gonna worry about any other plastics out there. We're just gonna focus on this. They found enzymes in the environment that actually selectively break down PET. This is back in 2016. Um, there was uh, a couple of Japanese scientists. They went looking around a PET uh, bottle recycling facility, and they sampled the soil around this recycling facility. And what they found in the soil was that they found these bacterium that could actually make enzymes that would break down the PET into carbon, like the carbon constituents. And so that's kind of you know that's amazing, right? Uh, if you look, biology will take care of it for you. You just need to kind of help accelerate that process. So if you think about biology, it's it's very blind. It 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 it, it does what it needs to, if the opportunity is there, right? Just enough to survive. Uh, and in our case, we want something very focused. We want to get rid of all the plastic trash, right? Bacteria, that's not their goal. You know, they, they just want some carbon from it or something like that. And so we can take out those enzymes, engineer them to be even more powerful, put them into another uh, microbe that is even better for scaling this up to an industrial process, then you have something that is economically viable, and so we're focused on those enzymes. One plastic PET. We're going to focus on one bacterium, with you know every bacterium has its its uh, uh, characteristics that are positive. For example, uh, for example, some a lot of bacterium grow at higher temperatures, thirty seven degrees. If you want to scale up, you want to not probably do that because you, then you have to heat things up constantly. That takes a lot of energy. And that actually adds up to, to a lot of uh, uh, fundamental structural costs in your process, right? And so maybe you want to use an organism that grows great at a lower temperature. And then we can pick one that grows super fast. So it's it's really efficient. And then we need one that actually can make bioplastics for us. And so there are these all these little cogs that you have to kind of assemble just right in a certain order for it to have input plastic waste output this new bioplastic and then you get out this, these bioplastics that you can just throw away and they'll degrade within a week in the environment you know that would be fantastic um and so yeah you're you're absolutely right uh in the end what what I'm envisioning is Within the next, I would say, 10 years, we would like to have a specific organism that is a proof of concept demonstration that you can efficiently take plastic, convert it into bioplastic or something else that's valuable, and have that presented to investors to the point where they'll be like, I can see how you make money out of that, Peter. Let's do it. You know, That's the kind of like response we want. And then at that point, let's say 100 years from now, there will be other people that have developed other strains, and you'll have a library at that point. You'll be like, oh, uh, what kind of plastic do we need to, to get rid of today? Then you'll pick that specific strain, develop for that plastic, and then use that. Or you can say, I have a huge amount of plastic waste. We know it has a lot of PET in it. We know it has a lot of like polypropylene in it. It's a mix of things. We'll just take from our library, a mix and match of all, all of our different strains and they'll work together to break down all that different plastic. That would be fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I think we're, we are on the cusp of this, uh, this very exciting area of development for, for synthetic biology and and kind of getting rid of all of our waste and applying synthetic biology to other areas as well that we're, we're kind of grappling with with climate change
0: yeah and then uh i know for anyone who is like wow that sounds really complicated it, it is but the, if you want a uh, great science fiction novel that goes into like the 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 way they solve the problem of the novel is using this like engineering organisms approach it's called project hail mary by the guy who wrote the martian fantastic book it's, it's over there i don't think anyone can see it but i recommend it if you want to just like uh like he i don't know it seemed pretty realistic the guy actually is like pretty much a, a big nerd on these things but the in the equation of and i understand like for anyone who's want who wondered like there's a wall because they're like developing it like we can't go like too far in the ip which is just like being respectful because they have to develop it and they you know commercialize into all these great things so they can keep doing great things just for anyone listening but on a high level what's the part that is the non-scalable part right now. Is it the finding and refining the organism? Is it uh, feeding the plastic? Finding the process to feed the plastics into the organism? And if it were like, if that's too granular, like just let me know we can like divert. But what is the non-scalable part of that equation?
1: Um, right now, it, it's it's almost all of that is scalable. Okay. Uh, so uh, you, you can imagine like uh, going back to the analogy of a car, right? Um, you have a car, but all of its systems don't work that well, you know, Mm -hmm. then the car just kind of eventually doesn't function as you would want it to function. You know, you wouldn't want to take it on the highway. Right. And in our case, it's, it's, it's all of those things that we're trying to tweak right now. So for example, the enzyme that breaks down the plastic that we feed it, right. These are naturally occurring enzymes. Um, and getting it to the point where it can really efficiently break down the plastic quickly is a problem, right? Um, So other people have tried to devise and engineer these enzymes, and we're also trying to engineer these enzymes um, to improve their function. So you want it to be highly efficient at breaking things down, right? And on the other end of the scale is, we want it to be highly efficient at making the things that we want, which is the synthesizing all of that stuff, right? the bioplastics, the fuel and all that. And this research has been going on for at least like 10, 15 years. Uh, a lot of people are looking into these, these biologically generated products. Um, and so this this that level of engineering is increasing the optimization so that you're making a lot of these products. And oftentimes when you try to connect those two, um, the amount of plastic you're breaking down and funneling into your bioplastics is is very limited. So you can think of like uh taking your input, breaking it all down into atoms, and then funneling it into your product and making those right. Ideally, it would be a one to one. The amount of plastic you put in would give you the amount of bioplastic you put out, right? But right now, due to the inefficiency of the process, that's just not the case. You get fraction amounts of mm-hmm. your product, and. It's just not viable to do that because you have to you have to make so much of it that a lot of the process is so wasteful um, that your the amount that you get is is so low that it will end up being expensive. Um, so just like any anything like a factory, right, that makes a product, if your factory only produces a very little amount of that product, it's going to be a very expensive product because it has to pay for the factory has to pay for the workers, has to pay for everything, right? But if the process is highly efficient and you're cranking out huge amounts, enough that the market is saturated, now at that point, the cost can go down, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then we're trying to to connect that. And then going back to the inefficiency of the process, where we're trying to connect these two, um, in the middle is the bacterium, right? And the bacterium, what it all... What this bat- microbe cares about is surviving. All it wants is to replicate, right? And so we have to actually kind of uh, engineer in to the microbe. No, no, I don't want you to take all these atoms and make more of yourself. That's not what I want. I want you to take these atoms and make more of this product. Hmm. And so you know uh, that is that that is another issue is streamlining the flow of the atoms so that the bacterium puts those atoms to use the way we want it to and not to use in other ways that we don't want it to. Um, and of course, you know, it, having all of that balanced and tuned is is kind of the key. And so all of those things are needed for something that's fully scalable, to be honest. Uh, and all of those things right now are are, you know, inefficient. And not only that, but, you know, we're talking about laboratory scale things. This is, you know, we're working in test tubes, we're working in uh, tiny amounts uh, of culture. When you get to the point where this has to be economically viable, you you think about an industrial scale up. Then you have all these other challenges to worry about, right? Um, so how do I dunk all this plastic that might be contaminated into a vat of bacteria? You know what's going to happen? Do I have to clean it? You know uh, if I have to clean it, how much is that going to cost? I do have to heat up the plastic so that you know it, it the bacteria are able to break it down quickly so there are all these like other issues that come into to play once we get the initial system up and running um and so yeah it's it's a bit of a long slog in terms of like things to tweak things to optimize
0: yeah but what oh so a couple of questions on this The have you thought about using some type of structure like a like a cow's uh, stomach that uses rumination of moving it from different chambers with different microorganisms. So instead of having like one omni-microorganism, you could have like a different chamber breaking down um, grass into something that can actually be used for sustaining the organism.
1: Yeah, uh, th- that's definitely an option. And a lot of mm-hmm. people do do this for a lot of bioprocessing, where just kind of like you mentioned, it's compartmentalized like a Mm -hmm. cow's stomach, right? Just like the way our stomachs do it, right? We, there's a certain digestive function for certain parts of our intestines, right? Um, And in a lot of bioproduction, it's also the case where they do that, where they, there's a very specific uh, place where one transformation happens and the product isn't quite what you want yet. It's kind of like somewhere in the middle. You take that and then you, go to the next one and then it gets transformed again into something that's a bit closer to your final end product. And you keep doing that until you get to the final end product at the very end. And you do that typically because uh, trying to put it all into one big vat often is inefficient. You want very efficient steps for each one in order to get to your final product. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's definitely something we we can do uh, and engineer, um, you know, this doesn't necessarily have to be an all-in-one m- magical microbe that takes in plastic and makes out this other bioplastic. We could have a microbe taking the, the plastic and just convert it into something that we another bi- microbe can use to then make its bioplastic. And both of those are specialized for two different things, right? This one specialized for breaking down plastic. This other one specialized for making bioplastic, and then you just have to kind of see where you can marry the two. Um, and yeah, I think that's a viable strategy. We're we're open to anything right now. Anything sure. that works, anything that is, uh, you know, would be economically advantageous. We're, we're definitely open to that.
0: Do you have the metrics thought out? Of the thresholds you need to meet to make it economically viable, like the, the time to, to break down, uh, the time yeah. to bring over, like have you like thought out that level so that when you meet those thresholds you know the wind conditions?
1: That is a fantastic question. And that's a question I think a lot of scientists either don't think about or they try to put off to the side. Um, and so that is an area called techno-economic analysis. Hmm. So techno side is technology, and then the, the economics of that, right? And so we are focused on just getting the, the the whole thing up and running. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to collaborate with people that are techno-economic analysis, uh, where they can take that entire process and say, all right, Peter, you take PET, you want to break it down using your process, given the efficiency you have right now using your system and making your bioplastic, this is how much your bioplastic is going to cost based on that entire process. They, they can map that out for you like an account, right? And then you can take that you can see, okay, that price for that bioplastic, how does that is that, can that compete with mm-hmm. what people are using right now for plastics? And what's the kind of the economic forecasts for people demanding bioplastic. And you can kind of start to make economic decisions at that point. Is this a good business decision? So techno-economic analysis is really what connects the science and the business together. And that is really, really a critical part because if you wait until the very end of your science to bring that in, then they'll probably be like, oh, well, this probably wasn't even a good idea. You wasted a lot of your time, right? So uh, we're trying to bring that in early. We're trying to get people to analyze the process early to see if it's even feasible for us to do this. Um, Because there's a lot of great technology out there uh, that is sitting on the shelf because it's just too expensive to implement in the real world, to be honest. Um, And until some other technology comes by that you can add on to that expensive technology and lower the cost, uh it's it's gonna sit there and nobody's gonna be able to use it. Um and so yeah that's that's a great question. Uh and and we're trying to kind of collaborate with people. If if there's a techno economic analysis person that does that kind of analysis listening, you know, please contact me. We'd love mm-hmm. to talk. Uh, okay. and, and but yeah that, that's that's the connection right there.
0: Yeah and uh for anyone who is not familiar with the Vs, it's like the I think of it like the modern day bell labs for biotechnology and synthetic biology the it's like if anyone's not familiar with bell labs it's like the the place for all the engineering everything in the modern world came from bell labs it's like the transistor all these different things so i think of it like that i don't know if the analogy breaks down with someone who's actually been on the inside for so long but that's how i think of the v's the it's like this so anyone listening in it would be highly advised to, to reach out basically uh it's a great place and, and peter knows his stuff so um the what i was thinking of how do you um how do you get an organism that wants to just make more babies right with, with the material that you give it uh how do you get it to not make babies like that seems like it seems like you'd have to like con- convince it that it's like something like photosynthesis where it's like doing something that eventually can make babies. And then it's just like right. a byproduct of the process. But chemistry is like magic to me. So I don't know how you do that. How- yeah, if, if this is like, once again, if this we're going two in the weeds on this, that you just, I have other questions, but how do you convince it not to do something that it like just wants to do so strongly? Right.
1: Uh, and I think that's a problem with, any living thing in general right yeah.
0: yeah yeah that's literally the
1: problem with cancer it's doing things we don't want it to do how do you get it to to behave and do what you want it to do um and I like to think of it almost like a, a, uh um, a river so when a river meets the ocean the area kind of splits off into a delta right and you have these, these areas, like almost like tendrils that come out from the main river and it forms, forms a Delta and mm-hmm. each tendril kind of feeds into the ocean. And the systems in a biological or- organism are like a pathway. So you could think of a complex network. Um, if you could think of like when you, when the bacterium eats something and it breaks down into atoms, then it funnels all those atoms. Of, to these pathways and all the pathways make things that it needs to survive for example right mm-hmm. so one pathway might make proteins obviously you need more proteins to to survive another pathway might make uh the lipids for its membrane right and so you need membranes because you're a cell and then another pathway might make dna you need dna because you're a cell right and so these pathways are evolved to change and adapt according to what's going on in the situation right now. So for example, if, uh, you encounter a toxin in the environment, the pathways will change so that you make more of a protein that will detoxify that compound so that you can survive. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is if you think, imagine this network in the, the bacterium, once it senses a change, it'll it'll have it'll actually be able to, to compute I need to do this in order to survive. And then mm. certain pathways will be enriched, other ones will be downgraded because mm. your 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 total flow of atoms, imagine it's constant. You know, you have to take something away to, to ramp something else up, right? And it's very much like ourselves, uh, where when you eat. The blood flows to your stomach right it's not flowing to your head you're, you're you know some people get food coma i get food coma and so your your body's like oh there's food all right i need to send all the blood here for a bit of time until i can digest it then everything will get back to normal guys right mm-hmm. and so it's this like punctuated okay we need to change the system until you get back to a normal state right and going back to the river example and so what's what's happening is when we want to engineer something, we want to engineer a specific pathway in that network that we've designed. We've actually put a new path in that network. And we don't want the bacterium to go to other pathways. We want it to just funnel into that one main pathway. And so the way we would do that is we would reinforce that pathway, that one pathway, so that a lot of the metabolites in the organism funnels into it. So we're kind of funneling things into it and going to the river analogy. It's like taking a river, looking at the Delta and saying, all right, I'm going to create a channel. I'm going to create a canal that connects the main part of the river to the ocean. And that canal is going to be, that canal is going to funnel 40% of the, the river. And when you do that, the other tributaries of the Delta are kind of going to shrivel up, right? Because now most of the the water is going through your canal. And so that is a canal's engineered and it's made for a purpose, which is to funnel things in a certain direction. And Mm -hmm. so we've done that. We're funneling things through one pathway. And when you do that, you might find that, you know, the bacterium actually adapts to what you've just done. And it will actually try to steal things off of that pathway into other areas that it needs to survive, like it'll actually siphon off parts of right. the things that you've done. And so it, it's a constant optimization cycle where you put in this pathway, the bacterium tries to adapt to it, and then you look at it and you're like, oh, I see what it's doing. It's trying to to funnel things into this other pathway. You go to that pathway and you crank it down. So going back to, again, to the river analogy. If you, if you do that, you put our channel in, but it's not working properly. And that's because, uh, this other tributary has like developed and now it's siphoning off things. You have to go back and you have to put a dam in that tributary, right? And so now you're trying to dam things off to keep that, that flow of metabolites going where you want it to. Um, so long story short, it's a game of whack-a-mole. That's, that's yeah. what <laughs> engineering these things is like um and and you know if you if you if you engineer this to where it's working properly and you use the same bug over and over and over and over it will eventually evolve out of that it will start to make mutations to kind of uh impede exactly what you've engineered because now if it does that maybe it can replicate faster or replicate more And then those will survive and those will actually overpopulate and those will end up decreasing the efficiency of your entire process. So these escape mutants is what we call them. These escape mutants are a problem. And typically the way to deal with them is to always start from your original culture where, you know, there are no mutations and to start your process using, using these clean mutants at that point. That's
0: interesting. is there, is there, with all this like advancement of AI and machine learning technology coming out, yeah. is there any opportunity to integrate with that technology to speed up? Because I think anyone listening is going to be like, if we can get this stuff faster, that's great. So is there any way to integrate to give you, you know, yeah, integrate the technology? Or do you do you plan to take anything integrated in so you can go faster or refine things faster? Or is there something coming up that you'd love to integrate in to your, what, yeah, to your, your yeah, workflow? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. So this is a whole other conversation. So I'm gonna be very brief. Um I, I can, yeah. So the whole AI stuff, you know, we we've all used chat GPT right now. You know, we we all have seen, you know, Will Smith eating spaghetti on YouTube and through the lens of AI and everything, right? And so AI is is kind of everywhere in the public consciousness, but I think what a lot of people don't know is that AI is really revolutionizing things in biology right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's it's we're we're making advancements through AI applied to biological data that in the past I would say five years have just been like mind-boggling to be honest. Um and the Vs is actually uh doing a lot of that work themselves actually. Um there's uh Sorry, I'm going to stop myself because I don't know if I should talk about it, but I I will send you a link when the paper is out. Uh, Mm. So our lab in particular, Jim Collins' lab is a lab that I work in. Uh, We do do a lot of work in AI-based library generation to Mm. identify novel compounds. Um, And the bees in general is very interested in in developing AI-based generative kind of technology for biology. And so there is a huge amount of uh, promise there and people mm-hmm. are already developing ways to kind of help us do that. And going back to that whole optimization cycle that I talked about, you know, it's very complex um, where we're trying to optimize certain pathways and there, people have developed algorithms where you can try to use AI to engineer these pathways that will give you the most optimal combinations of uh, pathways to to engineer in um and so that is possible the tools are are kind of emerging right now um and so it, it's just a challenge of the, the biggest challenge to be honest is taking an experimentalist like me and finding a, a person to collaborate with that is mm. uh adept at this kind of generative ai technology for biology Luckily at the V's we have somebody like that. His name is Charles Riley. Um, and so we, uh, you know, we collaborate a lot and there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in the AI space for synthetic biology. I, I really think it's, it's, uh, it's another revolutionary area right now that's happening.
0: Yeah. And, uh, uh, <laughs> I was just thinking about making a joke that like there was like adding a cut here like the men in black came in and told us to stop but uh i don't know if uh people would enjoy that as much as i would but so wh- when there is new technology that comes in this is like a meta question how how do you know what technology or ideas or knowledge is worth you going down the rabbit hole to becoming a master or at least sufficiently well enough about it so that uh, you could like incorporate it, like build on it, like you're like the lead tech guy on it, versus like I could like proficient enough working out the conversation, but really partner with someone else to handle it. Like, how, yeah. how do you like? Because there's just so much stuff going on, and you can't know everything. So then you have to like Agreed. know what to specialize in and when to specialize in it.
1: um I think that's a personal decision. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are more comfortable delegating to other people to get things done because they want to get things done efficiently. A lot of other people, and, and I fall into this this uh, camp, um, a lot of people like to learn things and like to kind of tinker a lot. And they're like, oh, uh, I need 3D printing for this project. Great, that's a great time for me to learn 3D printing then. You know, they, they dive into it and they, they learn 3D printing. Um, and, and I'm, again, a part of that camp where, you know, if there's a new... Something new for a project where it's something that I haven't learned before. I, I kind of jump at the chance where I'm like, "Oh, this is a fantastic opportunity for me to learn this and, and become adept at it." Um, obviously, you come up against your own limitations, uh, especially for things that are uh, far, further outside of your wheelhouse. Uh, you know, for example, AI, right? Um, so I, you know, I grew up with computers. I did a lot of programming uh, when I was younger. Uh, but a lot of the AI stuff is just like very specialized.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so you need to know enough. You, you still need to know enough to know what's going on. So you do need to kind of do a deep dive into the the mechanics of that process until you're like, man, this is really hard stuff that is beyond my ken. Like, you know, I I, I I'm struggling to understand this but at least you will have the vocabulary to communicate with somebody that does at that point. Mm-hmm. You have a vague idea of what's going on. You kind of can talk to them and, and they're like, oh, this guy kind of understands the whole process. It, it's it's basically learning enough to know that you don't know enough. <laughs> and, and you're not ever gonna be like efficient enough to do it efficiently to the point where your your project can, uh, can thrive. Um, and so you do get this to this point where if you try to do it yourself, your project will suffer, you know? Mm. Um, and uh, once you get, you have to realize that going down these rabbit holes is fun until you don't see the light anymore. You're so far down there, you're lost. Right. Uh, and I think the more I do things, the more, the older I get, the more projects I'm on, the more I'm mindful of like going down those rabbit holes. So I'll go down, take a peek and then say, uh, uh-uh. uh, this is, this is a time sink. I can't do this. Right. Or I'll bring in people that are experts, such as my resident bees expert in AI, and we'll talk about things. Uh, and, and the great thing is these experts that you have, you want to tell them, I want to learn more about this. Do you have a primer or a review or something to get me started from just a complete lay, layperson point of view? And most of these people will be more than happy to... to Give you resources to introduce you into into uh what the subject is and then at that point you build a relationship between yourself and the collaborator where you're learning what they're doing they're learning what you need and you're you're kind of uh you're kind of trying to arrive at a point where you're both on the same wavelength mm-hmm. um and i think when you get to that point that's when your technology that's when your project really becomes synergistic, and great things happen at that point so uh yeah it's it, that that's that's my personal view of how I deal with that um, and it's different for everybody else of course yeah
0: yeah I think that's a good methodology though for anyone out there struggling with it and they haven't found something for themselves I think that it's something to think about and maybe they can find ways to tease out and hypothesize a way to implement that in their own lives like the you never like the big thing is, as general thing of advice for anyone listening, in, is don't take things carbon copy and implement them in your life. They will explode. It's not, is not designed that way. Everyone's life is different. But uh, so then talking about the V's, the I think it's something I always wonder about is uh, learning more about an area as you stay in that area. So we've talked about the t- technological differences as you've uh, transitioned more into uh, climate technology, but I'm also wondering how has your How, how has the V's changed your perspective on the V's as you've been there for another five years? I always wonder, you know, like there there are times where I'll walk, or I'll do something in an area that I know, like the back of my hand, and I'm like, oh, that's new. I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know that that path existed. You know, Um, so I'm wondering, like, what, like, even like, what did you, what have you like discovered, uh, learned, or refined in like this year that you weren't as knowledgeable about, you know, like, insert. Better terminology there for the last like five, six, seven years that you've been there.
1: Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, I mean, what? The, I'll give an example. One thing I've learned, you know, uh, everybody at the V's, the, you're right about the whole Bell Labs thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the the I think the key thing that connects what Bell Lab was, and I I think the Bell Lab has become a bit bit of a legend, right? Um, Yeah. But but the key idea between what the Bell Labs was able to do is they had a critical mass of the right people, right? It's just having the right people put together in a small space, thinking of great ideas, basically. And I think the V's has kind of replicated that that kind of formula, uh, where they have a lot of great people with uh, you know, great backgrounds and they're trying to put that critical mass together. So pushing all those people together, getting them to work together, right? Um, And oftentimes there are people in the Institute that are working on things that are synergistic with what I'm working on that I d- just didn't know they were able to do. Hmm. Uh, so one great discovery this year was finding... uh. For example going back to uh the the generative ai issue is finding that they were that was an area that they were pushing and creating mm-hmm. generative ai at the bees. so the, the uh the, the chief scientist uh charles riley was developing that and it just so happened to fit in with a lot of our other projects and so there's a project i'm working on where we're working together on that um that you know that came out as soon as I knew we had that capability, and so in a in a, in an institute like the V's where there's it's so diverse, you kind of have to sample what people are working on uh, because you never know when it might be synergistic with what you you're working on, um, and I'm working on bioplastics for example, and I just realized that literally the people next to me. Up from a different lab are working on plastic degradation as well, right? So that, that's kind of crazy. Um, and in terms of how the bees have changed over the years, so I've been there almost a decade now, uh very long time, and the bees has actually done a very great job at not being stagnant, um, at being kind of uh, kind of dynamic. They, they know that things are always changing and they always have to change with them. And so things are always dynamic. They're always trying new things. Um, and the whole, the whole, um, the whole mentality at the V's often is, Hey, this is a new way of doing things. Let's try it out and see if it works. If nobody likes it, if people disagree, then we'll fix it, you know, but mm-hmm. let's not be afraid to try new things. Uh, and that, that, you know, obviously that idea for science is a no-brainer, you know, that you should be open to innovation, new ideas in science. But, you know, it's, it's across the board, that mentality at the Vs. That's how they, they have organized strategies and, and how different areas of the Vs are organized as well. So it's very progressive. It's very forward-thinking in terms of that. Um, and I think that kind of attention to make sure that we don't stagnate uh, as a culture, as an institute uh, is definitely needed you know and and I realize that no just like no living thing is ever static or ever the same. no organism that is a collection of people such as a corporation or an institute or a university is also ever the same it's it's always a dynamic living thing. and so you know the 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 these has done its thing that it needs to to stay at the forefront of innovation uh harvard's always changing as well it's its own institute and yeah you just need to need to be, be mindful of it and you know at some point uh if you're in a company and it, it the the culture or the company changes to the point where you guys d- aren't really matching anymore then that's when it's time to move on right uh but you know, the visa is still fantastic, and uh, it's the, the, the changes that happen are things that are fantastic that need to happen for it to stay kind of innovative.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it sounds like it'd be really cool if there was like once a quarter or something like that where there was like a one-pager synthesis that was like five minutes long where like every department would send like a random, like, you know, like uh, everyone would send like one person and go on that big stage i was i was at the bees you guys have great conferences and uh yeah. i think you have multiple ones actually but the and then everyone just like like blitz through like hey i'm peter this one i'm working on here's my one, one pager if you're working on any of these different areas or this sparks something in you come talk to me i'll be over there and like just like blitz yeah. through every single one if you do that uh, i would like to be invited but uh it doesn't sound like i think that'd be like a great great opportunity just so, like everyone's familiar but they're not in depth familiar like you can just like do it like five minutes like five per per person and i don't know how many people are at the visit the v's i think it's like it's like nearing on a thousand though so like that would actually take some time yeah uh we do have like like half a day
1: we do have an annual retreat uh and that's kind of where usually you get the the overview of what everybody's working on Hmm. not just the people that are presenting for example but uh in poster sessions, you get to walk around and talk to people, you know, and, and the secret in science is often, or at least for me, this is what I, I've found. The poster sessions are always the most valuable. Uh, yeah. Cause that's when, uh, for, for those of you listening that aren't don't know what I'm talking about, it's when you have a bunch of scientists that get together and then they present posters on their work. And these posters are, you know, it's about six feet by five, five feet, maybe, A big poster. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, if you guys remember, we we did science fair projects as a kid, and then you would have to make posters or something like that. It's very similar to that, almost exactly like that. Um, And the great thing is, you know, you get to walk around and just talk to people, people are much more relaxed. And there's no time limit. uh, When you're talking to somebody in a poster session, there's obviously a time limit for the session itself. But unlike a talk, where you're for example, if there's a presentation and somebody's presenting, and you talk to them, you can the question the the conversation kind of is just like very pinpointed, you know, until because they they have to leave the stage and somebody else has to present, right? But a poster session, you're able to sit there, you talk with a person, you talk about the data, and you get to have a real conversation with somebody um, and maybe even multiple people because there's often multiple people around a, a poster. And that's when I've had the most fruitful conversations and the most uh, enlightening kind of connections with people is during those conversations. And so, if you're ever invited to to these conferences, uh, the poster sessions where it's at that's that's where the, the fun is.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So, but, so uh, I I've I've been to these types of sessions. I've presented at these sessions when I was in college. The research that I was doing at the time, but. I always wonder how do you sometimes I end up just standing there and reading their paper awkwardly as they like, you know, as they like uh politely wait for me to read and then ask them questions. Is there is there uh like what's your workflow to like walk up to someone with a poster? Do you do you go to like ask them or do you read like the abstract conclusion, like synthesize it as quickly as possible, then start asking them questions? Like how do you go from like zero to having like a somewhat meaningful conversation? And uh, at the same time, if it's just standing there and reading it and then having a conversation is the best way. That's fine. I don't mind being awkward. I can do that. That's. Yeah. But I feel like there's like a better way. <laughs> yeah.
1: So the easiest way, you know, everybody that's presenting a poster is typically excited about the work that they do, right? Mm-hmm. And so often, you know, it sounds very, it sounds very vague and boring. But the easiest question to ask somebody when you come up to a poster is, could you tell me about your work? Hmm. Just like, just open it up for them to kind of present their, uh, their poster. Because when you, when you're, when you are a poster presenter, like when you're presenting your own poster, you obviously made that poster. I hope you did. Um, uh-huh. and you've arranged that poster in a logical way that makes sense to you. Right. So you, you're, you're writing that story for people to, to, to see. And so you've already have it in your head of the story you want to tell. And then somebody comes up, they read your poster. You don't want to interrupt them because they're reading. So mm-hmm. you, you're, you're trying to be polite, but you have that story already in your head. And so all you need is that invitation from somebody to say, hey, tell me about your story. Tell me, tell me what's going on. And then once you kind of unlock that most people just kind of gush out like oh mm-hmm. let me tell you about this it's great and they'll they'll walk you through the whole thing and so you don't have to sit there and take all of it in just uh kind of unidirectionally just reading mm-hmm. it you might take a couple of minutes to to kind of get your bearings see what the what's the poster about right um look at this look at some of the data and then be like, Hey, you know, this looks really interesting. Tell me about your work, you know? And, and then from there, the, the conversation naturally evolves. Um, it's kind of like, you know, going to a bar and, and saying, you know, Hey, you know, tell me about what you do stuff like that. You know, you, you need, mm-hmm. you need that icebreaker there. Uh, to me, the hardest part has just been oftentimes people aren't near their posters. It's just there there's nobody there, nobody to ask questions. Right. Um, and so that that to me has been the hardest part, uh, is just finding people, tracking down people, I guess. You no,
0: know, uh, yeah. I I love the simplicity of that. Just like, uh, woefully just described, like I'm definitely going to steal it and uh, and credit you when it works well. And if it doesn't work well, I will uh, blame myself and uh, try to refine it. But the I think that you know, like people always are buttoned up and they try to look really nice at these things. Wouldn't it be really cool if they like they like they made shirts? They had a little mini printout of their poster on the front and back of their shirt. So if they wander oh, off, yeah, you be like, oh, fun. that's your phone. Fo- you can, like, find them. And then you, like, color code them or something. So it even, like, pops out even more.
1: That, that'd that be super fun. The, the print might be kind of small. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of people, they try to fit in as much as they possibly can into the poster. Uh, there, there's, like, a bunch of text there. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, if they had uh, t-shirts, you might have to, like, chase somebody trying to, like, read and look at all their data. So, But th- that would be very fun, actually. Please invite me if, if you ever have something like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or you know, I'll, I'll lobby the V's to to do something like that. And I think I think as long as you see like the big bold title thing, I don't think you know yeah. it's like that that bumper sticker. If you can read this, you're too close. Like I think like just like hey, let me let me just stare at your back for the next five minutes. <laughs> I think that maybe just like the headline would be uh, and then you know like you know you can connect them or something. But uh, because I I think people always want to look nice, and I think uh in this case, if you're promised that, uh maybe the V's can uh make it uh more casual or something. And then uh maybe maybe you know someone could be like the business that does that for them and that's kind of like a little cottage industry. So is there um is there anything else related to your work as it relates to climate tech that you're it sounds like you're going to be pretty full up on plastics, but is there anything else that you are intending to uh, uh, uh even in the in the mind space of just like you seem like a very curious person like in the the, the yeah. few times that we've spoken to together uh, and so I'm making the, the guess that you probably read stuff, uh, ingest stuff and then form these different ideas that it's like, oh, if I have time, I can go down these different roads. And so I'm curious, what are these, some, some of these other roads as it relates to climate tech and synthetic biology that you're maybe not you don't have the time to go down, but that are kind of fun for you?
1: Yeah, um, we, we actually just recently published a paper uh, on synthetic biology and climate change, trying mm-hmm. to kind of merge the two. That uh, looks at a lot of different things, uh, and one thing that I, I mentioned before that we talked about in length is the whole plastic thing. Um, mm-hmm. But there are a lot of other things that we 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 have looked at areas where synthetic biology can be applied to things that are going on right now in climate change, and these things that are going on are not things uh, that are abstract anymore. I think this year has really shown people that climate change is actually, you're living it right now, um, yeah. right? You look at the ocean temperatures in here, down in Florida, it's almost like jacuzzi level, which is like, absolutely crazy. Um, you look at how hot things are this year, you look at, and th- there are all, the, all these other issues that are happening, for example, um, over on the West Coast, you have uh, algal bloom outbreak, and you have all these sea mammals that are washing up on shore and getting poisoned by them, right? And so climate change affects the entire ecosystem, right? And of course, ecosystems made of living organisms, and synthetic biology can be applied to anything that is kind of a living system. And so there's a lot of things that a synthetic biology can be applied to do. Uh, A couple of things that we explored, for example, coral, coral bleaching, huge -hmm. problem, uh, corals, they, they're, they're the key habitat for a huge percentage of animals in the ocean. And so you could think of it as like wiping out the rainforest, you know, Mm uh, that diversity, that loss of diversity will have impacts, definite impacts on the global food chain, everything that we can think about. Right. And so for coral bleaching right now in Florida, due to the high water temperatures, that is, that's going on right now, as we speak, corals are swaths of corals are dying right now. Um, and can we use synthetic biology to kind of try to, uh, save as many corals as we can, at least allow them a chance to adapt. Because things are changing so quickly that they can't adapt and they're dying. And so can we at least put a Band-Aid on things where, for example, can you engineer the corals to be more resilient to hot temperatures? Mm-hmm. That is something that we, we've thought about. And a lot of other people have proposed in the past. Is there a way to do this? It's a synthetic biology. can't tackle that, you know, because it is a living system, Right. Uh, it's It's a very interesting living system to deal with because it's a symbiotic living system. You have your coral cells, which are animal cells, and they actually kind of host algae that gives them the energy. And at hot temperatures, this kind of uh, association, this kind of relationship dies. And so the algae leave, and the animal cells they basically starve to death. Uh, and so you can think of it as when you see a white coral, that is basically the skeleton, and so it's like it's like seeing the skeleton of a, a, an animal in the desert, right? That's what you're seeing is you're just seeing the skeleton. Um, and so, can we use synthetic biology to to kind of um, strengthen this connection so that the algae and the animal cells, the coral cells, stay together even at hot temperatures, and that it's resilient to hot temperatures, um, so that it can eventually adapt uh, because. That is the biggest issue right now is climate change is happening i think we're i think it's going to be very hard to prevent the full effects from happening uh given where we're so late in doing anything about it but can we at least make sure that the living systems on the planet some of them survive um so right now it's it's a matter of uh triaging right in order to triage patients, you need the medical technology to do that, right? And so synthetic biology can give us that technology. It it, it can give us the band-aids we need for the next century uh, to at least save something, right? Um, And so the coral bleaching is is one thing that is definitely uh, a concern to me. Another area in our lab that we're actually are directly working on right now is uh, looking at uh how to sense the different uh organisms in the environment hmm. so for example can you detect how climate change is impacting different organisms in the ocean in on land uh in the forests, for example in, in an easy way um and so right now the way the way that people do it is, how do you count fish? Well, and go, you catch fish and you count them, right? But is there an easier way to do that?
0: You do, there's uh, a mossy earth, does some type of like water test and you can see the DNA, I think. Right. That, so yeah. this, this,
1: whole, this whole eDNA technology is really, I think, one of the key things that is uh, going to be implemented at a large scale. Things are still kind of being done in the old way. But this eDNA technology, there was a couple of papers published last year and this year where they sucked air out of the, just out of the atmosphere. They just kind of caught a bunch of air, they filtered it down, and they were able to extract uh, eDNA or environmental DNA from that air. And so you can imagine just being, imagine you're you're completely blind to what animals are in the area, right? And you just have an air filter sucking in a ton of the air, go back to your lab, And then you can figure out everything that's within 10 square miles of where you were. That's awesome. You don't have to. That's absolutely crazy, right? And so this study was done in the UK last year, and they did it near a zoo. And they were able to identify all the animals in the zoo, you know, just from Mm -hmm. DNA in the atmosphere. Uh, So can we apply that on a larger scale? So now you have a, a surveillance network of what's going on in the environment for organisms. So you can say, okay, there's this, this whole uh, food chain over here might collapse because this population is gone now. You know, how do, you, how do, you, how do we get that amount of data um, so that we can actually kind of put in either regulations or we can alter things so that, you know, this our ecology doesn't collapse. Mm-hmm. Um because uh, one of the things I think that's going on right now is a lot of environments, a lot of ecosystems are collapsing, we just don't know about it. We don't know until they're gone, right mm-hmm. You guys probably heard uh and your listeners probably heard I think this was last year about all of the, the the king crab in the Arctic disappearing yeah, two right?
0: billion or something like that just gone right. so
1: one d- one one year they're there, you get a harvest. Crop, you get a bumper crop. Next year you look back and there's nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like a mystery. What happened to them? Where they go. And so we're blind to this until we look back and it's nothing there anymore. Then we're like, oh, it's just gone. Right. By then it's too late to save anything if you look back and it's gone. Um and you know, I don't think this is alarmist because it has happened, right? This is an example of it happening right now. Um mm-hmm. uh, and so we need to just uh be able to see what's out there. And right now, we're we're kind of blind as to what's out there. Um, the way we we catalog living things right now is just so low throughput. Mm-hmm. It's like just taking a quick glance and that's it, right? You want something where you can you actually have sight where you can see what's going on, you can make guesses and predictions based on the dynamics of how things are changing over time. Um, so I think that's a huge area right now is really leveraging ED day and making a network of this is the ecosystem. This is a state of the ecosystem right now. Here are the danger areas where things might collapse.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, that, that's really fascinating. I definitely recommend you and everyone listening to check out Mossy Earth. They do like rewilding, re, re, rewilding of different environments around the globe. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and they talk about this all the time. And uh, I, I just thought of an idea that you could use to fund this project. You get all the Bigfoot people together, and you say we will go th- through this. We'll develop the technology, and then we'll go out and we'll we'll like scan the whole any place you want. You guys can fund it. I bet you'd get the funding. If there's like twenty really? TV shows about Bigfoot, I think you could be able. You could. You could find him if he existed, or at least confirm you he know, doesn't exist.
1: That would actually that would, that's a fantastic idea. Yeah, uh, uh, Edna Bigfoot
0: uh, survey. Yeah, Hunt, I guess Peter hunts um, Bigfoot, and it's just you in a lab. <laughs> uh, I could see it.
1: No, I mean, you know, Bigfoot is you know we we laugh at Bigfoot or anything, but I, I'm a very open minded person. You know, cryptozoology mm-hmm. is. is me yeah sure if there's if there's data for it then i might believe it right yeah uh, we just need to find the data for it and so yeah. edna is a fantastic way for you to to look for something without actually having to go out there and mm-hmm. uh you know locking locking eyes with with a, a yeti or something like that right yeah uh yeah i mean it's it's uh it's something we'll we'll start on Kickstarter and, and see see yeah. how it goes, right?
0: <laughs> I think it'd go well, and if anyone takes us up on this opportunity, make sure you don't cut Peter out. Uh, the tech he needs his technology the uh, then um, actually just a quick just you know so we're not making fun of the Bigfoot people. The number one group of people that find people who are lost in the woods are Bigfoot people. It's actually like a statistic like they're out hunting Bigfoot so religiously that they, they find lost people all the time. like they're almost like a force service for service i was reading this test the other day so if anyone's you know laughing at the bigfoot people at least they're saving lives and then uh so i think that's uh oh yeah we ran over the time so i will just thank you so much for coming on the show today uh not giving me eyes or a side eye or you know anything to let me know that (laughs) they're getting mad at me because we went over but thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your passion and your love for your work and getting people excited about uh, hunting Bigfoot with EN DNA and, uh, making changes in my, uh, plastics in the environment.
1: Awesome. It was, it was my pleasure and, uh, had a great conversation with you, man. Uh, and I hope your listeners, you know, please reach out if you guys have any ideas. Um, you know, we're, we're scientists, we're open to everybody and their thoughts. So uh, I'd love to hear from everybody as well.